Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. Alright, so this is our third week in our series on marriage and sexuality and what Jesus taught about marriage and sexuality. And I'm just going to dive in here. So, some of you might not know this about me, but I have a sexually messy past. Fun thing to admit. Most of you have known me in more recent times since I've been married, but when I was young, I was exposed to pornography very early on, and I had a habit of getting in messy dating relationships and had one-off encounters and had a lot of trouble with compulsive behavior. And I was very aware of how broken I was in these things, but also felt unable to change them in myself. And then I was introduced to Jesus. And this idea that I could be forgiven was powerful, right? And when the preacher gave the altar call, I said, yeah, man, I'm in. I signed up. This is awesome. And it was good. And I received the powerful forgiveness of God. But my behavior didn't change. And this was partly due to the fact that I believed that God was an angry God. I was given the message that God was holy and God hated sin. And by extension, God hated me. I was too ugly to stand in the presence of God, which already met the narrative that I knew of how ugly I actually was. And so for my prayers for many years consisted mostly of apologies. You guys know that place? Have you ever been there? I'm sorry, God. Forgive me, God. I'm terrible, God. I'll try to do better. And that would bring some relief, right? Because I would know I was forgiven, but my behavior didn't change. And after a while, I got tired of apologizing to God. The routine just felt old. And so I went through periods of resentment towards God. God, why do you just hold me to the standard I'm never going to live up to? And periods of defiance towards God. And finally, just apathy. This is just how it is. Nothing is going to change, so why bother? And after all this, guess what? My behavior didn't change. And then one day I decided to try a radically different approach. Which was simply to let God love me. To come fully and completely before God. Not an apology but just as I was, and say, God, here I am. I don't know if I'm ever going to write this. I don't know if I'm ever going to change. I don't know if anything will ever get different, but here I am. And you know what God said? I love you. Thank you. And I began the process of learning to do that, of learning just to sit with God and letting God love me. Not without any agenda, not without, not even with an apology, but God, here I am. And 
learning that God liked me, that God loved me, that God delighted in me, that God was just grateful that I was in his presence and in his home. And a funny thing happened. Once I began to do that, once I began to believe that I was loved just because, I began to talk to God about my longings and my desires and the things that were going on inside of me and about my heartbreaks and my hurts. And I stopped being afraid to tell God what I was feeling or rounding it off to make it PG or telling God what I think God wanted to hear. You know, for years I wrote out my prayers. I I like to journal, but I would never write about my sexuality because it was too embarrassing, right? And what if somebody found it? And then I just said, well, forget it. I'm just going to do it and I'm going to throw it out and nobody's going to see it but God. And God and I will be in this together. And as I began to do that, trusting that God was a non-judgmental presence, trusting that God was okay with me, that God already knew this stuff and that God smiled on who I was. That might sound like apathy, right? That might even sound like permissiveness, but it was something entirely different. It was radical love. Do you guys know the difference between those things? It's subtle, but it means everything. It was allowing myself to be a child that God delighted in just because. And guess what? It changed me. First of all, when we know we are okay, when we're like fundamentally in our soul okay, compulsive and self-destructive behavior kind of loses its edge. Because you're not trying to constantly put a salve on this pain. When I knew I was okay with God for the first time, I could actually begin to pull things apart with God. What, what's up with this longing? What's up with this desire? What up? What, what, what's going on there? And I could hear God say things to me like, okay, that desire isn't bad, but that behavior dehumanizes others. Okay, that longing isn't bad, but you're buying into a really destructive narrative about yourself. I began holding things up to Jesus in a different way. It's okay to long and sexuality isn't bad, but it's not okay to hurt your brother or sister. When I wasn't hiding in shame and I could let all of myself come before God, the love of God began to cut through me. And instead of holding my sexuality up to the condemnation of God, I could hold it up to Jesus and say, God, I want to be like that. And guess what? When you do that, it changes you. Amen? Shame may stop you from doing something stupid. The law might help you understand right from wrong. But if you actually desire to be turned inside out like Jesus calls us to, this sort of transformation only happens in the radical love of God. It only happens when we allow God's love to penetrate every aspect of who we are and in time turn us into Jesus. The soil of transformation is not shame. It is the radical love of God. Amen. And this is the good news of John chapter 8. That God comes to this woman who is buried in shame and says to her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. 
You are safe in me, my child. I see you and I love you. You are loved exactly where you are, exactly in who you are. You are mine. And it's only when we hear those words first and we actually let them change us can we hear that second part of this story. Go and sin no more. Until we allow that neither do I condemn you to get into us, go and sin no more will always sit like a weight around our neck. But when we can be seen and loved by God, we can grow and be turned into Jesus. So in your sexuality, even in places that is really broken and sinful, hear the good news. God is for you, not against you. God is on your team. God is for you, not against you. Amen? Amen. So let's come back to John 8. You guys know this story? It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's going about his teaching. And by this point, we're still only in John 8, but he's already begun to divide people over who he is and by who he associates with. He's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and this has caused quite a stir. And so the Pharisees try to trap him. They say, if if Jesus really loves all these sinners, what will he say to a woman caught in sin? Will he really break the law of Moses in front of everyone? So they drag this woman in. And if you haven't picked it up, the whole situation is sketchy. Like, it's really sketchy what's going on here. The woman is caught in adultery, but like, it says she's caught in the act of adultery. How do you catch someone in the act of adultery? Especially if you're a good, morally upright priest, right? You set a trap for them. You set them up. And meanwhile, according to the law of Moses, both she and her partner are supposed to be there, but he's not. The man involved is nowhere to be seen. The Pharisees in this case clearly have no interest in justice, right? Or caring for the community or restoring anyone to the love of God. They're using this woman. She's an object and a trap. And Jesus sniffs it out. As Jesus has a tendency to do, he reads their hearts. And let's go back and read that. That second part again. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard it began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. So question. How many of us think that the Pharisees in this story are actually the voice of God? Marie, if you want to put up that picture. How many of us experience God in this way? We think God is against us, standing over us, ready to throw the first stone 
The Pharisees drag her into the public square, right, naked and ashamed and guilty, ready to destroy her without a thought. And she's left to do nothing but huddle in fear and pray for mercy, a sentence she probably won't get. How many of us think this is the voice of God? Or have lived that way? Or have received that? Or have internalized that? Even if we never say it, that's how we're living. How many of us, shame is the first emotion we feel before God. Apology is the only words we have before God. You want to put up the next slide? Does anybody know what this word means? The devil. For those online, the word up there is the devil. Yeah. It comes from the Greek word diabolos, which means the accuser. Or in its most literal form, the one who hurls against. So the Pharisees in this story are not the voice of God. Who are they? The Pharisees. <laughs> they are the Pharisees. <laughs> They are the evil one. They are the Satan, the adversary, the one who stands against, the one who seeks only to kill and destroy. Whatever you think of Satan, I know we all have complicated relationships to that. When you hear that voice, when that voice becomes the dominant voice that you think is the voice of God, the Bible has a word for that. And it's Satan. The one that buries us in shame and makes us hide from God and holds us under perpetual condemnation. That is not the voice of God. So if you bury yourself in shame and constantly apologize to God and feel like you're perpetually under God's wrath and condemnation, that is the voice of Satan. And against that voice, we need to hear the voice of Jesus in this passage. At this, those who began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. The accusers, the accuser falls away. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. My child, has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. This is not how Jesus looks on us. Go to the next one. That is not the voice of God there on the right. This is the voice of God. Can you receive that? Can you hear the voice of Jesus say that to you? Neither do I condemn you. You're good. You know, it's funny. If you look for pictures of this passage, in most of them, Jesus stands over the woman. But it says in this passage that he was down scribbling in the dust. He's with her, right? 
I think this is more accurate to what's going on there. He is right in front of her. And I can almost imagine him, right? If you imagine this scene, Jesus in the dust, looking directly into her eyes with the accusers behind him. And where do their accusations fall? On Jesus. It's almost as though he is literally shielding her and protecting her from the voice of Satan that comes against her that says she is worthy of death. Jesus protects her and shields her and takes it all on himself. He takes that scorn and shame and condemnation on himself so that she can hear these words, neither do I condemn you, neither do I condemn you, neither do I condemn you. And he does this because he loves her. She is his beautiful daughter and he loves her. And Jesus does the same for you. Actually take some vulnerability to be able to receive that, to let Jesus look you deeply in the eyes like that and protect you from everything, from every voice that would stand against you. And say, neither do I condemn you. I love you. I love you so freaking much. You are mine. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if that hasn't hit you before, or if you've fallen away from that message, I pray that it gets through. <laughs> that God could hit you in that place. That you would allow yourself to be the woman in this story. I have another story that's similar to it. and You guys know we've been talking about it. We've been reading Tattoos on the Heart uh, by Father Greg. Father Greg Boyle. And he, he shares a story. Um, those of you who have been coming on Wednesday will know this one. It's the Fermi story. So, yep. I want to I read this to you guys. Father Greg is speaking, and he says, Willie crept up on me from the driver's side. I had just locked the office and was ready to head home at 8 p.m. Dang, Willie, I said, don't be doing that. Spencer G., he says, my bad. It's just, well, my stomach's on echolay. Kick me down with 20 bones, yeah? Dog, my wallet's on echolay, I tell him. A dog is the one whom you can truly rely. The roll dog, the person who has your back. But get in. Let's see if I can trick any funds out of the ATM. Willie hops on board. He's a life force of braggadocio and posturing, a thoroughly good soul. But his confidence is outsized, that of a lion wanting you to know he just swallowed a man whole. A gang member, but a peripheral one at best. He wants more to regale you with his exploits than to actually be in the midst of any. In his mid-twenties, Willie is a charmer, a quintessential homie con man who's apt to coax money out of your ATM if you let him. This night, I'm tired and I want to go home. But it's easier not to resist. The food for less on 4th and Soto has the closest ATM. I tell Willie to stay in the car in case we run into one of Willie's rivals inside. Stay here, dog, I tell him. I'll be right back. I'm not 10 feet away when I hear a muffled, hey, it's Willie and he's miming the keys. 
From the passenger seat of my car, he's making the over-the-top key-in-the-ignition señales. The radio, he mouths as he holds a hand, cupping his ear. And I wag my finger, no, shall I? Then it's my turn to mime. I hold both my hands together and enunciate exaggeratedly, exaggeratedly, pray. Willie sighs and levitates his eyeballs, but he's putty. He assumes the praying hands pose and looks heaven, heavenward, cara sanchua. I proceed on my quest to the ATM, but feel the need to check in on Willie only 10 yards later. I turn and find him still in the prayer position, seeming to be only half aware that I'm looking in on him. I return to the car, $20 in hand, and get in. Something has happened here. Willie is quiet, reflective, and there's a palpable sense of peace in the vehicle. I look at Willie and say, you prayed, didn't you? He doesn't look at me. He's still and quiet. Yeah, I did. I start the car. Well, what did God say to you, I ask him. Well, first he said, shut up and listen. So what'd you do? Come on, G, he says. What am I supposed to do? I shut up and listened. <laughs> I begin to drive home, him home to the barrio. I've never seen Willie like this. He's quiet and humble. No need to convince me of anything or talk me out of something else. So, son, tell me something, I ask. How do you see God? God, he says. That's my dog right there. And God, I ask, how does he see you? <coughs> Willie doesn't answer at first, so I turn and watch as he rests his head on the recliner, staring at the ceiling of the car. A tear falls down his cheek, heart full, eyes overflowing. God thinks I'm Ferme. To the homies, Ferme means could not be one bit better. Not only does God think we're Ferme, it is God's joy to have us marinate in that. Amen. Have you ever had a moment like that? Do you know that God thinks you're Fermi? That God looks on you and says, you could not be one bit better. That is somehow, amazingly, how the God of the universe looks on you. And I hit on all of this because until we realize that, we won't grow out of our sin. Until we can hear the voice of God say, neither do I condemn you, then we can't move on to the conclusion to go and sin no more. As long as we think we have to win God's favor, as long as we think God is against us and not for us, as long as we think God is the accuser, go and sin no more will hang like a weight around our neck that we cannot shake Go and sin no more will only lead us into more sin and shame and hiding from God, perpetually broken, perpetually apologizing to God. You guys know what I mean by that?
But once we realize we are firm, we don't have to be afraid anymore. And we can let God in, even into our deepest desires and longings, even into our sin. We can begin to let the love of God penetrate us down to our marrow until it makes us new. I borrowed a book from Marjorie this week called The Anatomy of the Soul. And one of the things it teaches is that until we experience a secure attachment, we can't change This is true in human relationships and it's true with God. The author Kurt Thompson says this. Transformation requires a collaborative interaction with one person emphatically listening and responding to the other so that the other has the experience, perhaps for the first time, of feeling felt by another. A person who listens emphatically and responsibly as someone else tells his or her story is able to validate the storyteller. And through questions and musings, arouse the individual's curiosity so he or her will consider alternative ways to imagine his or her story. Okay, that was pretty dense, but do you get the idea that like when we actually feel safe in the presence of another person for the first time ever, we can actually kind of hold our life out and go, oh, look at that. Oh, maybe there's another way to live. Oh, maybe I don't have to be threatened to even get into the muck. I can look at that. And that's true with another human being, and that's true with God. Both of those things are true. They kind of weave in and out of each other. As long as we're under threat, we will always posture and present or hide ourselves in shame. But when we know that we're firme, we can actually begin to go, God, here I am. Make me new. And God does hate sin, right? But often not in the ways we think. God hates sin in the way that I hate when I see my children make mistakes and sabotage themselves and get caught up in their own fears and insecurities. And I hate it not because it makes them impure and I can't be around them. I hate it because it breaks my heart to see them suffer. It breaks my heart to see them hurt themselves and hurt one another, hurt other people. So I would do anything to take it away from them, which is what God does. God enters in and takes it upon himself and says, neither do I condemn you. Now that you know you are absolutely loved, why don't you leave your garbage with me? The call to holiness is real, but it's a calling that rests on the unconditional love and joy of God. It's a calling that grows as we allow God's delight to come in. Amen? And once we have experienced for this, this for ourselves, you know what our calling is from this passage? To help others hear this voice. Once we realize that it is the radical love of God that changes people and not the law and not condemnation and not shame and not finger wagging. It's our job to help others know that they are radically loved by God. I love this story from Father Greg, not because of uh, not just because of what happens to Willie, but like what Father Greg do Does he preach a great sermon that turns this guy around? 
Does he tell him that he sucks and he really needs to get his life together? In fact, he does almost nothing except provide space. And that's a big deal. That's a really big deal, and we often miss it. As a Christian, the most valuable thing you can offer someone else is not condemnation or the law. It's space. Space to work it out. Space to meet Jesus. Space where they know they are safe to be loved by God. Space not to stand over the person, but to stand next to them and say, Have you met Jesus? He thinks you're amazing. And when you give someone that space where they know they're safe, they can come naked before God too and let the love of God come into every dark place and make things new. Again, this is not about apathy or permissiveness. It's about radical love, creating space where that person can know they're radically loved by God. And that will change them. We, all, we, we always think we have to use the right words we need to let someone know when they're in sin. They know. 98% of the time. Help them to be loved by God, to know that they are firm, and they will be changed. So, this is a sermon on sexuality. And if I dare do it, I'm going to wade for just a minute into our hot-button issue of the day, which is sexuality and homosexuality and LGBT stuff. So if someone comes into your life who's heterosexual, you know what your calling is to them? Provide safe space where the love of God can transform that person into Jesus. And if someone comes into your life who is gay, you know what your calling to them is? Provide safe space where the love of God can transform that person into Jesus. And if someone comes into your life who's cisgender, You know what your calling to that person is? Provide safe space where the love of God can transform that person into Jesus. And if someone comes into your life who is trans, you know what your calling to them is? Provide safe space where the love of God can transform that person into Jesus. Providing this space is not the same thing as saying, it's cool, do whatever you want, we're all sinners. Providing the space is about allowing God to do the work, not me. I don't really have the ability to fix anyone. That's God's job. It's my job to provide the space for the radical love of God to come. I may offer advice or my opinion or point them to scripture, but I'm not the fixer. Do you get that difference? Because it's huge. When I think it's on me... I preach and I condemn and I tear down and I become the accuser. But when I realize it's only the radical love of God, then I say, have you met Jesus? 
He thinks you're amazing. And that'll change a person. If you're willing to do this, the transformation of God will come. It might not come on your timeline. It might not come in straight lines. You might not get direct you might not get to direct the outcomes and it might not fix the person in the way you want. But if you can offer that space to allow someone to sit fully in the love of God, they will look more like Jesus. So we get so caught up in, in whether certain sexualities are right or wrong, we often fail to ask the more in question, important question of what do we do about it? Whether it's in someone else or in ourselves. And when we encounter that, the answer is not condemnation or shame or apathy or avoidance. It's radical love. It's to get to the space where the lover of our souls can do his thing. And that will change us. Amen? And of course, I can also guarantee that if you do this, if you start making safe space, for people who are on the fringes, for sexual sinners, for people who are outcasts, you will put a target on your back, just like Jesus did. People say the same things about you they said about Jesus, that you're soft on sin, that you don't care about a holy God, that you aren't being biblical, that you aren't really a Christian. But this is why I'm compelled by Jesus as he keeps his eyes on her. And he is driven by a deep love and compassion for her. She is worth it to him. And he takes those accusations on himself. Even when the scorn falls on him, even when it nails him to a cross, he takes that on himself for her. Because she is firme, she could not be one bit better to him. Jesus loves her that much. And that's the love that's come for us, for you, for me. God wants to free you from your sin. God longs to free us from our sin. But in this struggle against sin, God is for us, not against us. God is with us, not over us. God can't take his eyes off us. One last quote, and then I'll close this up. Divine love is incessantly restless until it turns all woundedness into health, all deformity into beauty, and all embarrassment into laughter. In the immortal words of Daniel Tiger, God loves you just the way you are. Let that invade every corner of your life and make you new. And turn you into Jesus. And then go give that radical love away to everyone you meet. Amen. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.